I, I don't know, I, I feel like I just want to tell stories. But that's probably not going to be the best use of our time. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this guy. One of the most amazing persons that has ever lived. David, the Israel, Israelite, the, the king of Israel, when uh, the nation was at its uh, high point, its apex. And today in this series, we're now three weeks in this series on David, we come to the longest and the most famous of all the many David stories, and that is the story of David and Goliath. And we are going to look at an incredible section of God's word, but I want to begin by stating the problem, because there's an elephant in the room. The problem is that when many of us, even in the church, come to the Old Testament, uh, we're not quite sure what to do with it. We're not quite sure how, how to handle it. Um, because the Old Testament is different. It's like reading a foreign book. Uh, it's all uh, about battles and wars and animal sacrifices and the, this thing called the uh, tabernacle and then later the, the temple and you've got the judgment of God and, and the wrath of God. So we're not quite sure how to read the Old Testament. We're not quite sure how to interpret it. So what we tend to do if we don't just put it aside or if we don't ignore it is we tend to moralize it. Moralize it. And we read these Old Testament stories like the story of David and Goliath like we would read any other biography today or any other novel for that matter. We look for moral lessons. So when it comes to the story in David and Goliath, it, it kind of goes like this. Our thinking goes like this, man. Uh, David had courage to face his giant, so I can have courage to face mine. And David did it, uh, I can do it. And if that's all we get out of passages like the one we're going to look at, that's moralism. Now, obviously, there's a place uh, for um, moral lessons in the Bible, and I'm going to talk about some today. Uh, morality is fundamentally biblical, it's critically important, but morality is never the primary redemptive purpose of the Bible, of any Old Testament story like this story or Old Testament passage. Why? Because you and I need more than advice. We need more than tips. We need transformation. So one of the things we're going to be doing, one of the reasons I'm talking about this with this passage today, is we need to rethink our approach to the Old Testament. For example, look what Jesus says in John chapter 5 when uh, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders are getting after Jesus, angry at Jesus, and they're talking about the scriptures. Look at what Jesus says. You study the scriptures. Now the scriptures here refer to the Old Testament. Uh, diligently, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures, the Old Testament, that testify about me. What Jesus is saying is that the Old Testament isn't fundamentally a morality tale, it's fundamentally a Jesus tale. It points to, it testifies to Jesus. So Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, man, you dudes can be studying the Old Testament your entire life and miss the point because the point of the Old Testament is me. It testifies to me. 
So in other words, <laughs> you can't read the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Old Testament, without reading about Jesus. Uh, today, you and I can't read the Psalms. We can't read the other poetry. We can't read the prophets without reading about Jesus. And when we come to these historical uh, stories, uh, narratives, the historical section of the Old Testament, we can't read that without reading about Jesus, including the story of David and Goliath. Because the Bible is all one story. That's Jesus' point. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament unpacks Jesus. And frankly... I think one of the main reasons many of us in the church don't much like the Old Testament is because we have missed Jesus in it. We have missed the gospel. We have missed grace in the Old Testament. And so, as I said when we kicked off this series a couple of weeks ago, what I want to do today in this very familiar, this very famous, and this typically moralistically interpreted story is show you a better way. And I will do that at the end of my message. So grab a Bible, turn in your Bibles, uh, take a Bible from the rack in front of you, and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I said it's easy to find. It's right before 2 Samuel. You guys can get there. If you're grabbing a Bible in front of you, it's around page 280. And today, because this story is so long, 58 verses, we're going to jump in the middle and pick it up in verse 32. So 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 32. Now David said to Saul, David has just been anointed king in the previous chapter, but Saul is still the reigning king, and Saul does not know that David has been anointed as king. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine that would be Goliath. Your servant will go and fight him. <laughs> Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy. He has been a fighting man from his youth. I can just hear dad saying to his son, you're crazy. You're not going to do this. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And he's saying single-handedly, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Underline or circle the word living there. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put on a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword, that is Saul's sword, over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. Now Saul, we are told in Samuel, was a head taller than anybody else in Israel. He was um, sort of a giant of a man. Uh, very strong, very tall. And, and David says, um, man, I can't go in these. 
I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones. A little debate about how big were these stones. Um, uh, some say, it seems like most scholars say they're probably a, a couple inches in diameter. And he took them from the stream, put them in the pouch of a shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with a shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David spoke, and David said to Goliath, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Amazing story. This is a classic story of uh, faith, courage, and bravery. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Saul's fear, Goliath's arrogance, and David's courage. But there's another level to this story, and that is this story is a dramatic Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at Jesus' redemption. So there's four pieces, four parts today. Saul's fear, Goliath's arrogance, David's courage and Jesus' redemption. Let's start with Saul's fear. Now to get there, I want you to go back to the beginning of this chapter, to the second uh, paragraph. We didn't read it, but something happens in this paragraph that is atypical uh, for Hebrew narrative literature, which tends to be brief and without detail. There's a whole lot of detail in that paragraph about Goliath. So, for example, we are told Goliath's height. We are told that he is nine and a half feet tall. Can you imagine? We're told that his armor weighs 125 pounds. And this iron tip of his spear, about 15 pounds. Now today in the Olympics, uh, the, the shot, in shot putting, the, the shot for men is 16 pounds. Goliath's spear weighed, or the tip of the spear alone, weighed about what a a, a shot does today in shot putting. In other words, what the author is telling us with all the detail is that Goliath was a human wrecking man. He was, if you will, a, a, a tank without treads. 
And rarely in all of human history has there been a more terrifying human foe. But unfortunately, Saul, the king, all the army, all the strong soldiers are overwhelmed. They're paralyzed with fear. If you look at verse 11, uh, you discover, man, they're totally dismayed, completely uh, terrified uh, because they know if they send somebody against Goliath uh, that that somebody's going to die. And what that means is the entire army is either going to be killed or enslaved, put in bondage, and that their wives will be raped and the families will be into forced bondage. It's a horrible moment for Israel. So in the very first verse we read in verse 32, when David approaches Saul, the king, man, uh, David is being diplomatic. David is being polite. He knows he's standing before the king. And he says, let no one lose heart. Well, the reality is everybody's heart left a long time ago. Uh, Let no one lose heart. Now, our English word courage comes from a Latin word that means heart. What is courage? Courage uh, is to have heart. Uh, That's true in English. It's true in biblical literature. What is fear? Well, fear is the absence of heart. Now, faith in the Bible is a vertical thing. It's confidence in God. It's living vertically. Courage is faith expressed horizontally in difficulty. Courage is having the heart to face down adversity. It's having the heart to do what is right. Now, faith is the root. Courage is the fruit. Fear, as I I said just last week, uh, It feeds on the host of unbelief. Fear is spiritual heart failure. It's a spiritual heart attack. It's the perceived inability to transcend whatever's coming at you. It's a perceived inability to do what's right. I mean, the cost is too great. Now, the author's point, starting with Saul and then telling us the entire army was the same way, is to tell us that everybody in Israel had no heart, no courage, uh, no no conviction to take on Goliath. They were all convinced they were going to die. And what I want you to see is here, Saul epitomizes heart failure, spiritual heart failure. He epitomizes fear. Now, last week, I I talked about our, our problem even as Christians, with self-deception. Now, this isn't uh, unique to me, but self-deception is the enormous capacity of the human heart, my heart, your heart, to hide truth from itself because that truth is too painful. I'm not an alcoholic. I don't have an eating disorder. I don't have an anger problem as he shouts. Uh, We hide truth from ourselves. Now, one of the ways to get at those truths that we are hiding 
is by looking at what we fear. What our nightmares are. Because fear left unchecked over time causes you to justify things you would never justify. It causes you to cross boundaries you would never cross. It, it causes you to avoid doing the right thing, something you previously wouldn't have done. It causes you to give up and become self-absorbed, to, to shut down. Saul's problem is not Goliath. It's on the inside. It's his insecurity. It's his fear. And that truth, the truth of his insecurity, uh, the truth of his, his lifelong fears uh, was so painful that he had never come to terms with them and now they were wide open for everybody to see. So as I've said over the last couple of weeks, man, you're, you're single. And you fear staying single. You, you fear being alone. We, we all do. And so what happens if you're not careful is, man, you give up. And you compromise your standards. You compromise your, your purity. And what's underneath that is fear. Or you work and work and work and work and work. And maybe you're the husband. Maybe you're, maybe you're the wife. Uh, and then when you're home, you're, you're, you're short or you're, you're grumpy or you're bossy or you're controlling. Man, you're stressed. You're tired. But the truth that you're hiding is that you fear failure. So you continue to damage the people closest to you because your greatest nightmare is the lack of approval. Self-deception. With Saul, it was rooted in his fear. Now let's go on to Goliath. And what I want you to see is Goliath's arrogance. Now when we come to this passage, we don't typically think of Goliath's arrogance. But what I want you to understand is here in 1 Samuel 17, what we discover is that arrogance is misinformed, misguided, uh, misdirected, misplaced courage. It's placing your confidence in the wrong object, in you. So in verse 44, look at verse 44, uh, uh, Goliath's arrogance leaks out when he says to little young David, come here, uh, man, I, 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 I'm going to turn you into food for the birds and the beasts. And ironically, these were Goliath's last words. Last thing he said before he was killed. You see, others point out that arrogance is banishing fear by convincing yourself you're adequate, you're competent, you're equal. Now, this is the primary way the world, the people around you, deal with their fears. They kind of huff and puff and they, 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 get, they get it together. And this is what passes for, conversely, what passes for, for bravery. I, I, I can do this. So today we talk a lot about visualizing. I mean, visualize catching that bass. Visualize sinking the putt. 
Visualize the speech. Visualize making the sale. It's telling yourself you can do it in the terms of the famous poem Invictus. It's telling yourself, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I I can do this. Now, to be fair, uh, this is much of what makes up the conversation of bravery today. And there's a place for some of this. There's a place for visualizing on a limited basis. Because this approach has some real downsides. We see a couple of them here. A Goliath's approach won't be able to sustain you over the long haul. It won't be able to sustain you after the adrenaline wears off. In addition, this approach of placing this confidence in yourself just really ultimately fuels and feeds your self-centeredness. But the real problem is, depending on the situation, it causes you to lose touch with reality. Goliath had not lost an ounce of strength, but here he has lost touch with reality. He has no idea about the greater spiritual realities around him. He has no idea of the kingdom of God. He has no idea that this young, puny little guy standing before him is about to take him out because God is at work. In other words, Goliath senses no danger. He's lost touch with reality. He wasn't fearful when he should have been fearful because fear in the sense of respecting danger, think poisonous snakes, is a good thing. A couple of Sundays ago, I think it was two Sundays ago, between services, after the services, I had a series of incredible conversations um, with people. I was talking to the elders about it at Um, a a week or so ago. Um, It it started with an Iraqi woman, a former Muslim, who's come to Christ in our church. Had a conversation with a a, a dad and his 23-year-old daughter who are from Liberia, who deeply loved Jesus Christ. I had a conversation with a, a, a man who left his Wall Street job to give himself to working with college students. I I had a conversation after, I I think it was um, the the second service with a former NFL quarterback who's now in full-time ministry. I I, I talked to a couple who divorced, uh, left the church, God began to work. They went through cancer, job loss. A couple months ago, they got remarried, and now they're back in our church. And I had a conversation with a couple. They came down uh, to the front here, never seen them before, and... uh, They're kind of new to the church. And he looked at me and he said, I'm terminal. Terminally ill. I don't know if I have weeks. I don't know if I have months. But I'm not going to live. 
And I want to spend each and every day glorifying Jesus Christ. Can we come in and talk to you? And they did. And I talked to them. I met with them this week. And their contentment, their peace, their courage is just incredible. Where do you get that? Where do you get that kind of courage? Oh, you don't get it from an adrenaline surge. Uh, you, you don't get it by looking to yourself. You get it by looking to another. By looking to God. Now, was Goliath courageous as the world counts courage? Well, you could say, yeah, he's ready to take on anybody in, in Israel. But it was a false courage. It was a courage that was out of touch with reality. It was misinformed, and it was arrogance. And I don't want you to make the same mistake. It cost Goliath his life. So let's go on to now to true courage. Let's look at David's courage. And if courage, and, and if courage is facing difficulty with confidence, we want to ask the question, well, what is biblical courage? What, what does it mean to have the kind of courage that pleases God? And the answer is it's facing adversity or difficulty with confidence in God. And those two words change everything. What is courage biblically? It's doing what is right when you're squeezed. When you don't feel like doing what is right because you know God reigns and because you want to honor him. And that's all over the story with David. It's pressing into your biggest nightmare. Your, your biggest fear. And doing what is right Regardless of the consequences, regardless of the cost, because you trust in God. It's Joseph back in the book of Genesis uh, refusing the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife because he trusted in God. It's Nehemiah leaving the comforts of the, the palace and going and giving himself to rebuilding the, the rubble of the walls of Jerusalem because he trusted in God. It's Esther, the, the queen. Risking her life in order to advocate for her people, the, the Jews, because she trusted in God. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, saying to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, we may die, but either way, we're not about to worship your God. Because they trusted in the living God. It's David here. Look at verse 47. Well, we read it. It's why David says, it's not by the sword. It's not by the spear. It's not by your height, Goliath, that the God saves. The battle is the Lord's. It's in his hands. It's a spiritual thing. That's the ultimate reality. Now, David speaks three times in chapter 17. First he speaks to the soldiers, then he speaks to Saul, then he speaks to Goliath. I want you to see another example of David's faith. Look at when he speaks first to the soldiers. Look at verse 26. 
These are David's first recorded words in the Bible. So they're a big deal. But they're a big deal especially because they demonstrate David's bravery was rooted in his conviction that's what's at stake is God's glory, God's honor. Now, now today, you know, we say, don't mess with my kids. That's how tiger moms live. Don't mess with my kids. Or we say, man, uh, you know, don't mess with my wife. Or don't mess, you don't mess with my friends. You don't, you don't mess, you don't say anything about my uh, friends. David says, don't mess with my God. Who says that today? Who says that today? And notice in verse 26, David uses the word living. He uses it again in verse 36. David's courage is is based on the fact that his God wasn't an abstract idea, wasn't some distant uh, reality, but was alive and well and just on the other side of sight. And right here, right now, and completely and totally present. So David lived forward because he had experienced the living God in the past and he never forgot it. And for you students, I want you to see here that David stood alone. He stood alone in school. He stood alone at work among the other shepherds. And he stood alone here before the entire Israeli military. And it was his willingness to stand alone for God that made him great. Now, most readers of this story, frankly, a whole lot of preachers stop here. They stop with the message of courage. But I want to tell you, there's another level. There's another level of meaning because what we have, as I said at the outset, is a beautiful, incredible picture of Jesus' redemption. And I'm I'm going to show you, but we need to understand this gets at the answer, the ultimate answer to this question. Where does real courage, the kind of courage that sustains us in life, the kind of courage that enables us to deal with our nightmares, our insecurities, where does that come from? And to get to that answer, to get to Jesus, it all depends on where you insert yourself in this story, who you identify with. So let me illustrate this solution. Look at what is said by the um, Gospel Transformation Bible. Look Look at this quote. Christians today are not meant to read the story of David and Goliath and mainly identify with David but with the people who need saving. If you get that, it opens this passage up. In other words, you don't read this and put yourself in David's sandals. I mean, really, who who among us is going to go out and take on somebody nine and a half feet tall? I'm not. You don't put yourself in David's sandals, man. You put yourself in the soldier's sandals, in Saul's sandals. And and when you do that, it, it changes everything. 
Because if someone doesn't save them, they are going to be enslaved. They're going to be taken into captivity, into bondage. Bad things are going to happen to their families, and many of those soldiers are going to die. The soldiers need a savior. David here is a picture of Jesus, of God sending a savior for cowards, for the fearful, for the disillusioned, for those that have lost hope, for the self-absorbed. David isn't primarily an example for us of courage. David, after all, doesn't say to the other soldiers, come on, let's go get Goliath together. And David doesn't say to the soldiers, you, you can do this, just visualize it. David isn't so much an example of courage. David is an example of Jesus. He's a picture of Jesus. Just as David acted as Israel's representative, he stood in the place of Israel's army. He acted as Israel. And his one act of victory was credited to the entire nation. So Jesus, acting as our representative, and his one act of dying in our place for our sins, credits salvation to all God's children. David is a picture of Jesus. And when we see this, uh, we begin to understand is what we have here is an incredible Old Testament story pointing to the biblical concept. Now, let me take this a step further and just hang with me for about 60 seconds. The biblical concept of what's called imputation. Sounds like a big word, but it basically means God imputes, God credits, God reckons, God regards us in Jesus Christ. Now, this concept, of imputation is used in three main ways in the Bible, and it's a big deal because it points to grace. Look at how Wayne Grudem puts it. First, when Adam sinned, his guilt was imputed to us. God the Father viewed it as belonging to us, and therefore it did. Second, when Christ suffered and died for our sins, our sin was imputed to Christ. God thought of it as belonging to him, and he paid the penalty for it. Now, in the doctrine of justification, we see imputation for the third time. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, and therefore God thinks of it as belonging to us. That's grace. I don't deserve it. It's not my righteousness. It is not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that is freely given to us. So David here in 1 Samuel 17 pictures this third aspect of this concept of God imputing his righteousness to us. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the ultimate David. That's the story behind the story here. Just as David was weak, young, vulnerable, Jesus became weak and vulnerable for us. 
Just as David risked his life, Jesus gave his life. Just as David freed Israel from the terror of physical bondage, Jesus frees us from the eternal terror of spiritual bondage. God gave us the David and Goliath story so we might see our fear. Your fear, my fear. We might be delivered from our self-deception. We might see how in so many ways we are really cowards. And so we might see our need for a Savior and we might see Jesus here in this passage. So let me land this. You mom and dads, you're teaching this story, this great Bible story, just as we have to your kids. And instead of just saying, hey, mommy and daddy want you to have the courage like David, you don't stop there. You go from moralism to grace. And you say, all of us, Mommy and Daddy included, are easily afraid. We have fears. But just as God sent David to rescue Israel, God sent Jesus to rescue us. And the key to overcoming our fear is to look to him who alone is infinitely strong. You see, mom and dad's what your, your kids don't ultimately need an example. They need a savior. Not tips, but transformation. And so the point of 1 Samuel chapter 17 is that the key to overcoming, cur- overcoming fear, the key to courage is Jesus. Looking to him. And it doesn't matter whether you're 7 or 77. Uh, The key to overcoming your nightmares, your, your insecurity, is to understand that Jesus Christ loves you so much, he faced the ultimate nightmare. Rejection, abandonment, separation from God, crucifixion for you. Courage biblically then. The ability to do what is right, to move past our fears, is a function of looking to Jesus, of resting in Jesus, of locking in on his incredible, infinite, courageous, brave, rescuing love. He's the one that loved us so much that he gave up his name so that our name would never perish. That's how much he loves you. Jesus is the God of angel armies. And he's always, he's always, always by your side. Let's pray. So, Father, as we come to you now, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can give to you. Uh, We can uh, 
worship you by giving to you. We can declare your worth. We can uh, declare our, our love for you from giving uh, back to you a portion of what you have so generously given to us. And as we sing now, God, bless our worship. Speak to us in it. For Jesus' sake, amen.